and welcome to Linux Action News, our weekly take on Linux and the open source world. This is episode 12, recorded on July 29th, 2017. I'm Chris. And I'm Joe. Hello, Joe. We have quite a lineup today for folks who love to run Linux on the desktop and maybe something that we might look back and say was a bit historical. Why don't we jump into some of the interesting bits happening with the Ubuntu Mate project? They have a new alpha. Yeah, alpha 2 of 1710. Why are we talking about an alpha? Well, you kind of alluded to it last week, and now it's actually available to download. This, I think, is the biggest release, 1710, for Ubuntu Mate since they became an official flavor. Mm. And, okay, it's only an alpha at this stage, so you're not going to run it on production systems. But it's well worth checking this out, because... If you remember at the beginning of Ubuntu Mate, they picked up a ton of Unity refugees, people who did not want to change. They were used to GNOME 2. They were happy with it. All this Unity, what? This is a completely different way of doing things. We're not interested anymore. And so they happily settled on Ubuntu Mate, and they've been quietly using it ever since, right? And now Unity's going away. And so the next release of Ubuntu proper is going to have GNOME. And so there's a whole bunch of people who got used to Unity 7, and now they want to keep using that same workflow. And so Martin Wimpress, Wimpy, has been working away in the background with his mutiny layout for the panels. And now it's it's got global menus. It's got the HUD, so you can search within um, applications. He's basically trying to do the same thing again for the people who actually change to Unity who don't want to change back. Right, giving them a landing spot essentially to uh, to move to a new island for them to jump to, and you left out my favorite new feature, which is complete super key support throughout several of the different panel layouts. Which is is not only was it a the representation of touching multiple projects, which is interesting to see the way the Ubuntu Mate project is doing this. Like they're doing, they'll decide on a feature and then they'll work across multiple projects with multiple different maintainers to get the feature implemented. So it's in the settings daemon, it's in the mate menu, it's in the brisk menu, it's in the dock applet. And now you can also do super key and then other buttons. So say you want to activate menus and other key bindings that use the super key. It's not just hard lock to menu launching. Now, I want to step back for a second and double down on why we're talking about an alpha right here at the top of Linux Action News this week. I believe this is the ripple effect of the announcement from switching from Unity to GNOME by Mark Shuttleworth. This is the ripples of that you not only have a pretty solid 1710 base, because it's mostly an improvement bug fix if you take off all the GNOME and, and GUI stuff. You remove all the transition to GNOME stuff, and 1710's pretty rock solid. And so the Ubuntu Mate project has been able to leverage that, and they already have something that I've been able to use at the alpha stage. And I, I ran the Mutiny tweak specifically. You go into the Mate tweak applet, and you say, I want this layout for my panels, and I chose the Mutiny interface. And then boom, and you have the mutiny layout. And it's pretty close, Joe. It's pretty close. And you turn on something like Compass, which I, I recommend, and I double-checked with our friend Martin Wimpress, is still being maintained by a Canonical employee. So Compass is still getting the love. And you turn on the mutiny interface, you enable Compass, and it gets really, really close, Joe. The only problem I can see is the dash isn't there yet. And it's something I spoke to Martin about today, and he uh, I suggested Slings Cold, which is a launcher which is quite similar to, uh, I suppose it's more similar to Gnome Shell, really. Um, but it's it's got that kind of big icon 
touchscreeny type interface. Uh, he said he's working on something. It's not Sings Cold because that he tried it and it kind of didn't work that well. But he's he's working on that final piece basically. Mm. Um, but the, the important thing to not forget here is that you don't have to use this mutiny layout. You can use traditional Ubuntu 10.04 GNOME layout, or he's got a Redmond layout, which is what I would use because look, I like the Windows XP layout. What can I say? Or, or rather the Windows 7, I suppose. I like to have a panel at the bottom. I like to have a menu in the bottom left. I like to have my clock in the bottom right. So it's it's versatile. It's diverse. You can have whatever you want with it. And thanks to Marte Tweak, it's it, a few clicks away to decide what you want. And you've got OS X or Mac OS um, clone. You've got um, Pantheon, which is subtly different and more like elementary OS. He... The thing is that he's got a lot of choices here, but it's, um, I should say they really, because it's not just Martin, it's the whole um, Ubuntu Mate team. But there's there's all these choices and it's really simple to select between them. And and that to me is, is where this is really shining. It's mm-hmm. not like Plasma where you've got all the options in the world, but it's quite hard to discover them. This is all in one place. It's really simple. And, you know, I've talked about moving to Plasma because XFCE, is what I use, and you know maybe that isn't going to make the transition to GTK three and stuff. But let's be realistic: if I'm going to move anywhere, it's basically going to be to Ubuntu Mate. I was wondering. I mean, you seem pretty impressed by it. And one of the things that I like about Ubuntu Mate and the Mate desktop in general is where they have forked. I agree. So my favorite fork is Kaja, the file manager, which is more like the original Nautilus file manager with a lot more features. Um, yeah, well, instead of stripping the features out like Nautilus yeah, has, yeah. it's just kept them. Yeah, so what what would push you over? Why not make the switch? Is it just simply no reason? Everything's working? Yeah, at the moment, I'm on 16.04. Things are working fine. If 18.04 is working fine, then I'll just switch, you know, just upgrade Zubuntu to that. And it's only if they don't make that transition to DTK3 and things stop working and I actively have problems, then I will have to move to something else. And I was looking at possibly Plasma, and there's a lot of innovation there. It is a very attractive proposition. And I am going to look around, obviously, at that point. But to be honest, it's as if I've got Ubuntu Mate in the bank. It's like, well, I've got that. That's safe. And if I can't find anything else, then I will default Mm. to that as the thing that I will move to. That's funny. That's really similar to my situation right now. I can see myself trending, and I'll tell you why I think I see myself trending towards Ubuntu Mate. If they've nailed it down this well in 1710, imagine how good it's going to be for 1804 with the LTS release. Yeah. So I feel like I'm going to end up there, but in the meantime, I'm looking around. And I'll say this. Give it it a full development cycle, so don't make your big switch yet. But when Ubuntu Mate 1710 ships, if you are in love with your Unity 7 desktop, consider giving it a spin. Because not only is it really dang close right now, but obviously the project has a goal here. And they're going to keep iterating on this, and they're just going to keep making it better and better. And that's unfortunately something your Unity 7 desktop now lacks. I'm so glad that I never got involved with having to use Unity and stuff. I just I went to XFCE probably about two years before that whole Unity thing happened, and I was just sitting there, you know, everyone's stressing about this, and I'm just sitting here using XFCE. <laughs> eating popcorn. You know who else was just sitting back eating popcorn is Fedora users, and it, we have a tweet from uh, Matt Diem, the uh, 
guy that runs the Fedora project, and uh, this looks really positive for the new Fedora release. Yeah, it's early days, so we don't know exactly how they're doing, but from the numbers, um, it's well, it's not exact numbers, it's relative numbers to the other releases. It's looking really good for Fedora 26. It looks like, I don't know, is it speculation to say that maybe there's some Ubuntu users who are thinking, well, if I'm forced to go to GNOME, then maybe I'll check out maybe some other distros that are running it? I could throw a little more anecdotal evidence your way if you want. I have I have received more so than any Fedora release in recent memory feedback from Fedora users who said they're making the upgrade right away to 26. I, I don't know if I've heard from many folks that have made the switch, but I'm definitely hearing from folks that are existing Fedora users jumping into this one. Because I, I, I feel like my, my experience with Fedora upgrades for the last three or four release cycles, which has been near problem-free, is representative of what a lot of other people's experience has been. Well, isn't that because Fedora are not making any massive changes? It's just incremental improvements. And it just kind of... It, upgrading the packages, upgrading the kernel, and a few little features here and there, but there's nothing major. There's no moving from one desktop to another. There's no, you know, GTK2 to GTK3 stuff. It's, if you're using 25 and you go to 26, it's going to be slightly newer and it's going to work just as well. Yeah, I suppose that might be right. It feels to me that because the Fedora project is working on such crazy future stuff right now, that that's unfair to them. But in reality, if you just look at the distro that we know and love today, the Fedora that we think of today, yeah, I suppose it has just been iterative updates. But where the project is going, Fedora might not look anything like it does today. And one of those is Boltron, the modular server preview by the Fedora community. When I was talking with Matthew Miller on Linux Unplugged about where the Fedora project is going with this, it sounds like they're trying to address the issue of upgrading individual components or installing newer parts of the system without affecting the rest of your Fedora system. So you essentially can virtualize out certain package sets and repos. Sure, they should just be using snaps, shouldn't they? Yeah, or flat packs, I suppose. I think they're trying to address it at the package manager level. Like, there's still efforts going on there to make this work right. And as a result, they're kind of building some new tools, and they're kind of improving some existing tools. So I, this seems like it could just overall bring up the quality of the Fedora project. Well, when I spoke to Matthew last, he wasn't very keen on snaps because... It's very Ubuntu specific. You mm. have to have the Ubuntu runtimes. And so it's not a surprise really that they're working on their own. Well, I mean, the Flatpak is more for the desktop, isn't it? Yeah. And, and whereas Boltron is very much server focused. Mm-hmm. So you can see why they don't want to just say, okay, let's submit, I suppose, and let's just accept that we're using snaps. They're doing their own thing as well. And what's probably going to end up happening this is Linux, this is open source, you're never going to have one thing, are you? You're always going to have a few competing technologies. And ultimately, that's probably going to be good because you're going to have different options there. You can either do it the Boltron way or you can do it the canonical way with Snaps. I suppose if I had the option, I would prefer to have a sanctioned Fedora packaged version of PHP, Nginx, or Ruby, or whatever that I install via DNF, and then just update via DNF. Having to install a flat pack or a snap and 
all of that is uh, is a lot of extra stuff just to have a specific version of Nginx. So I think Boltron could really have something to offer here, and we may find as this develops further that it's more nuanced and they don't quite solve the same problems. Because in the back of my head, I'm combining this with other initiatives they have, like Fedora Atomic, where they're using OS Tree to do snapshots, and they're working on a workstation version of that too, Joe. So you take an entire snapshot of either the server or the workstation before an update, and then you make a hard switch, and if something breaks, you can just go right back to the version that worked fine. And that would be really nice on a, like a workstation class machine in a corporate environment. So I could see them really kind of combining a bunch of different features and making Fedora attractive for both server workloads and desktop workstation workloads. Yeah, and I suppose you could say that uh, another organization and company that are making that easy is SUSE. And they've gone down the BTRFS or ButterFS route to make that happen with the snapshots and everything. Mm. And uh, OpenSUSE Leap 42.3 has been released, and it's bringing it more in line with SLE, SUSE Linux Enterprise. It's Is it fair to say it's basically the same at this point? Yeah, it's essentially SUSE Linux Enterprise 12, Service Pack 3, and then they've identified a few areas where they've deviated from the base system. So they, they avoid major version updates in the base system and in the desktop through this whole update. So it's really a pretty consistent rather unadventurous matter, as they put it. So don't don't picture this as like a huge, big leap forward, because we're talking uh, it's Plasma Desktop 5.8 long-term support version, which is the default desktop, GNOME 320, which is exactly the same one that's used by the SUSE Linux Enterprise that it's based on. So yeah, Joe, I'd, I'd say if you, know what you, if you know what you're getting with SUSE Linux Enterprise 12, Service Pack 3, then you know what you're getting with OpenSUSE Leap 42.3. Yeah, the fact is that SUSE Linux Enterprise, well, the clue's in the name, it's an enterprise distro, and it feels like OpenSUSE is drifting more towards that. And to me, that makes it not that exciting. I don't know, I hate to admit that, but I mean, even their version numbers, 42.3, it's, you know, it's it's not something that's going to grab headlines, is it? And to me, it just seems like a solid distro that in reality, I'm probably never going to use. I suppose I kind of agree. I think it's exactly what it needs to be for the market it's going after. And, and I think that's why they go out of their way to say it's a rather unadventurous matter because they're trying to they're trying to tell you this is a safe, stable way to use OpenSUSE that you can use in the enterprise. I I wonder if this will be successful because you combine this with their Tumbleweed initiative and then you can kind of you can choose whichever side of the spectrum fits you better where you can go a little more rolling or you can go way more enterprise. I think that's a very unique proposition, and it's. I think it's got to be leading to growth. For me, what it comes down to, and my background with, with SUSE, is I ran SUSE extensively for years in a large enterprise, as both the desktop and the server. And then uh, I've stayed current with OpenSUSE over the years, on and off testing it. And um, I, I found it to be pretty good distribution. It doesn't really work for me, though, with Yast. I'm, not a, I'm actually not a big fan of Yast and all of the files it touches and how slow it is. And I'm also not the largest fan of ButterFS. And back when I originally used SUSE, they were huge proponents of RiserFS. And uh, so, you know, as it being the default, and uh, I was installing that distribution for the support, I put RiserFS on everything. And then Hans had to go murder his wife and the Linux community completely abandoned RiserFS. And of course, SUSE kept on shipping it, kept on leaving it as default, kept on, kept on, kept on, until one day we were moving to 
XFS, and I was left with all of my file servers having to be converted. And then it's funny to see that repeat itself now with ButterFS. So for me, that combined with the changes to the package manager over the years, which seems to be a really great package manager now, but of course I've been around since the early days when I was using red carpet to manage software on OpenSUSE boxes. So I've, I've really been there for a lot of transitions, and they just kind of lost me um, the third or fourth time they sort of changed the package manager out. And so I don't ever see myself using it either because it's just too different of a Linux distribution for me. But I can watch it from afar and go, I love the two different approaches, rolling and stable. I think uh, OBS and uh, also where you can remix a box is the, the build service and whatnot is all of that is really a nice asset to the community. So they seem to have some great stuff, but like you, not ever really going to run it myself. Last.ting.com. Thank you to Ting for sponsoring Linux Action News. And thanks to everybody for visiting last.ting.com, where they'll take $25 off your first Ting device. Or if you bring one, check their BYOD page. They'll give you $25 in service credit. The average Ting bill is just $23 per phone per month. It's really simple. $6 for the line, and then you just pay for your minutes, your messages, and your megabytes. No contract, no early termination fee. You can bring a device. They have a GSM or CDMA network, or you can buy one from them. No crazy software pre-installed. It's really a nice system. Everything you'd expect, nationwide coverage. People love Ting, and you will too. Go to last.ting.com. And by the way, just a quick tip. If you share a video telling Ting why they're a great fit for your family, you could win one of five Moto E4Ss and $250 in Ting credit, which would last you a long time. You can find out more on their Twitter page, at TingFTW, or their blog. Just do me a favor and start by going to last.ting.com. Right, Chris, we have to talk about Flash. There's no other way about it. Even though it's not really Linux-related, even though you can kind of run it on Linux, even though you probably shouldn't, it's been the biggest news story of the week in tech generally, so I think we have to at least cover yeah. it a little bit. Every Linux user cares too. Yeah. So Adobe announced that Flash will die at the end of 2020. That is three and a half-ish years away, which to me seems a reasonable amount of time. All too often, Google will just dump something and give you a few weeks' notice or a few months' notice. I think this is the responsible way for Adobe to do it, for them to accept defeat, but say that they're going to keep doing security patches and even features as needed, they said. I don't think there's going to be too many of them coming, but you never know. And they are going to encourage people to move to open standards. And it's funny how they yeah, twisted yeah. the uh, the words in the announcement to say that they've always embraced open standards. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. okay, Adobe, yeah, nice yeah. one for that. <clears throat> the uh, high, I guess, positioning, you might say, the well-positioning of open standards like HTML5, WebGL, and WebAssembly features, I think, strongly in this blog post. And for a long-time Linux user, it's really something to see Adobe promoting HTML5, WebAssembly, and WebGL and saying they're killing Flash. Like, that's a that's a weird thing to be reading as a Linux user on Adobe's webpage. Yeah, I've never been a massive fan of Adobe, I must say. Photoshop's pretty good until it got really bloated. But, <laughs> you know, they, I've never liked them as a company, whereas this, I can't fault it. They're accepting defeat, they're giving plenty of time for people to move over, and they're promoting open standards at the same time. 
we're living in a topsy-turvy world again. Yeah. The only thing I would ask for is maybe if they could have done this five years ago. But other than that, it's it's actually a pretty good move. Yeah, and if they could give us a tool to convert SWF files into an open standard, that would be nice as well. Oh, an open standard. Who needs that, Joe? Just let Flash die. Its time came. It had its reign. It's time to move on. Let's all just let Flash pass gracefully. But what about all the old animations, the old games, and more importantly, the old educational resources that were made in Flash and are still relevant and still being used by people? Oh, those new market opportunities for developers to come along and rewrite it in WebAssembly and WebGL. That's you talking about that. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, it's always good to create work for the tech industry. I'm yeah, not going to complain yeah. about that. But well, the reality is that a lot of that content is just going to be left yes, to rot. There is that. And perhaps that is the motivation behind a petition to open source the Flash spec. Yeah, you knew this was coming. You could hear me teasing. This is a petition that says, hey, Adobe, why not open source the Flash spec? It'd be good for everyone. It would be a good solution to keep Flash projects alive and safely archived for many reasons. We don't know how this is going to be done, they say, but that's the beauty of open source. Well, I would imagine that the higher ups at Adobe thought, yeah, that's a great idea. Let's have a quick look at the source code. Uh, Oh, mm, uh, no. No. Well, Joe, you don't have to worry. The open source community is full of uh, magical unicorns because this petition, quote right from their page here, we understand that there are licensed components that you cannot release. Simply leave them out with a note explaining what was removed. We'll either bypass them or replace them with open source alternatives, comma, using our magic pony dust. Uh, They didn't put that part, (laughs) but I think that was a typo. Yeah, and more importantly, what about all the comments that say, uh, this is an ugly hack, but it kind of works, so let's leave it in. I want the comments to say, this should screw over Silverlight. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, I don't know if this petition's going to go far, but it, it seems very optimistic, and uh, it's also up on GitHub with, with a whole outlay of different references and discussion points and pointing out with, that Flash is an art medium. And there, you know, I, I make fun, but there is some seriousness to some of this. There are things that would be nice to be able to say, toss up on archive.org and run in 10 years. Well, I read through the Newgrounds post on this. And Newgrounds, to me, if you think Flash, you think Newgrounds, right? Or at least traditionally, I have all the animations and games and stuff on there. Mm-hmm. And they've basically said, well, we haven't really been using Flash for about 10 years at this point. And, mm. you know, we're not really bothered by this. So, you know, I, I don't think it's as big a deal as some people would make out. But in terms of open sourcing it, I think that is just dreaming. And I think that the best case scenario here is Adobe is going to release a free as in beer, but lockdown proprietary tool that will convert your SWF file into something that is vaguely usable with open standards. Hmm. That would actually be a decent compromise because in some sense, if we had an open source flash, it may never go away. Well, we've already got one of me, Ganache and all that oh, yeah. kind of stuff. Oh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. This is a good time, everybody. Go double down on Ganache. Mm, yeah, we just want it to go away, don't we, at yeah, the end of the day? And probably you're right, open sourcing it is just going to prolong that agony and just make it never truly go away. But I think that even if it was open sourced, it doesn't have to go away to go away, if you know what I mean. All it takes is the major browsers to stop supporting it, and then it's effectively gone away anyway. 
that's very true. The Debian project probably isn't too concerned with all of this flash nonsense, but they are a bit more concerned with reproducible builds. Yeah, so when I first got interested in open source, one of the first things that occurred to me was, okay, so we've got all this source code, and then I learned, okay, so that a lot of it has to be compiled into binaries, and it's like, well, how do I know that that binary is made from the source code and doesn't have a few backdoors slipped in or some extra code. And given the the different compilers that people are using, the different systems they're running it on, you traditionally, and even in a lot of cases now, you can't produce a binary that is exactly the same, that has the same hash as the one that you're sucking down from your package manager. I wonder if this is even more of a concern in the Linux community where you have distros that are re-spinning and they're using packages from an upstream distribution, but they're, you know, you never really know what they're doing when they're re-spinning their desktop wallpaper. They could be including different versions of the applications than what, say, Debian has in their official repository, and you wouldn't know. Well, put it this way, I'm not going to lose any sleep over it. Yeah, but same. at the same time, if I know that it, you've got a reproducible build that you can have exact same binaries as it should be, I might sleep that little bit better at night, put it that way. I agree. So something interesting that developed this week was a post over at lwn.net that we'll have linked in the show notes. I think it was from uh, the mailing list, so it's kind of a nice readable format. I didn't realize this, but the efforts that we've been hearing going on in other Linux distributions like Arch and Fedora and OpenSUSE and Tails... These are all in coordination with the Debian Reproducible Builds project, and they've set up a cross-communications and support project agnostic namespace at reproducible-builds.org. So this is, a, this is a real community effort that's developing here. Yeah, and on the Debian side of things, if you look at the architecture that most people are actually interested in, which is the MD64, 94% of the packages available for Debian are reproducible at this point, wow. which is virtually all of them. That is a big step. That That is huge. That that really makes me sleep soundly, put it that way. Yeah. I think they are trying to raise awareness, though, because there's some projects where they filed bugs saying we need this or that fix to be reproducible, and it's just kind of sat there for a couple of years now. So they are trying to raise awareness that we need a little bit of help from the maintainer side to get this all working. Well, I think that if anyone is going to coordinate something like this, Debian seems to be a very good project to do it. Yeah, and the effort seems to be a worthwhile effort too, so it's nice to see. It looks like FreeBSD and NetBSD are also getting in on the fun. <laughs> so that's kind of pretty cool to see. Yeah, I wonder if the BSD Now guys are going to uh, talk about this and accept that they're getting help from Debian and Linux. <laughs> I wouldn't bank on it. No. We do have an update on a story we touched on briefly in the past. Mozilla has an initiative underway to bring voice recognition to the masses. And I wanted to just talk about Common Voice for a moment because they touch on something that I don't know if gets a lot of consideration. Common Voice, if you recall, is a project to sort of open source voice recognition or at least make voice recognition available to the web. And... They frame this in a really interesting way. They talk about today's speech recognition technologies largely being tied up into just a few companies that have really heavily invested in them. And that's essentially down to uh, Google, AT&T, IBM, and Nuance. And if you want something outside the browser, you essentially license it from one of those companies. And like in the case of Nuance, you can actually pay up to a penny per invocation. So that means, say you're Mycroft or whatever, and you're using Nuance, and your users are 
costing you one cent per query. So per time they say, hey, Minecraft, what is beans or whatever. That's going to add up really, really quickly. That's going to be hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars before yeah. you've even yep. realized it. Absolutely. And so Mozilla's point here is this is becoming a much more common way to interact with our devices. And soon users, and maybe already, will have expectations of interacting with the web that way. I don't know if that's true or not. I, I could actually see it. Uh, my kids, who are not the greatest spellers yet because they're very young, they're actually getting pretty good. And one of the ways that they get around the web is by using voice dictation because they have no problem with that. They hit the button, they tell the thing what they want, and boom, they've got it. And I could see that really becoming big in education spaces and in, in all kinds of usability scenarios. So there is probably a legitimate need for some sort of opening up of speech on the web. And Mozilla's got to be the company to do it. But it feels like a big uphill battle. And they're trying to rally other browser companies to support a common web speech API, which is a W3C community group specification that would allow developers to write speech-driven interfaces that would use this service. So it would sort of open this up, make a more competitive market. The thing is, this is a very expensive thing to do. But at the same time, they're crowdsourcing a lot of the audio content that they need. And I've been doing uh, 20 minutes here and there of verifying the various things that people have read in. And I've donated my voice as well to it. So they've got the community side of things to some extent, but the resources that they need, let's face it, they've got Yahoo billions or at least millions to play with. And we've talked many times about how Firefox is not doing massively well and Thunderbird they've basically dumped at this point. So it's not like they don't have the resources to do this. And I think that if this really is the future, I'm a bit curmudgeonly about this. I'm not seeing it. I know you've wholeheartedly embraced it with <laughs> Alexa and all that kind of stuff and Siri on your phone. But if this is the future, then Mozilla needs to be part of that because say what you will about them, they do want to drive openness. And they, every, their solution to everything is the web, which, okay, well, maybe this is the right thing to do with a web API. Uh, I don't know. I'm not 100% convinced about that. They seem like the right company to do that, though. Yeah. Either way, I'm glad that they're involved with this because I trust them more than I trust Google or Apple mm. or Microsoft mm. or Amazon. Mm hmm I don't know if it's the future, but I do think it's going to become definitely another primary input method. Just sort of like touch didn't replace the keyboard or mouse, same thing. I don't think voice is going to replace anything, but it's going to definitely supplement input. But we'll have to see. And hopefully this is an area where Mozilla can do some real good. And the place they have the most leverage is the web. So this seems like a recipe for success. And I like that they're keeping us updated. You can find links to that and everything we talked about in the show notes over at linuxactionnews.com. That's also where you can subscribe for all the ways to get new episodes and linuxactionnews.com slash contact for ways to get in touch. Yeah, and if you want to support the whole network, you can go to our Patreon page, patreon.com slash jupitersignal. We'll be back next Monday with our weekly take on the latest Linux and open source news. I'm at Chris LAS. I'm at Joe Rissington. Thank you for joining us, and we'll see you next week. See you later. Bye.